0: As the illustrious grandfather of our next speaker like to say, we live on a water planet. The oceans cover about 70% of the globe and are the main sustainers of life and of climatic stability. We're mistreating them, as well as our freshwater bodies, with devastating potential consequences, in part because we've barely understood the oceans, much less the life in them. In introducing this champion of the seas, Philippe Cousteau, I'd like to share a few pictures from the census of marine life, which I have to have a little bit of bragging rights here. is It's a global science project that was actually founded by my brother, Jesse Ossibel. I'm very proud of him. <laughs> and um, it just completed an amazing 10-year run that has exponentially increased our knowledge of the life of the oceans and the diversity of the oceans, which is extraordinary. Um, he was actually fishing on Martha's Vineyard He'd been working on climate change mainly for a lot of years. But um, he wondered all of a sudden, how many fish are in the sea? You know, an eternal question. And you can't really do conservation if you don't have a baseline. What are we going to restore to? And it resulted in you know, how much, this little question, fishing on the beach. <laughs> how many fish are in the sea led to the census of marine life? It's a hugely complex, incredibly rich project. I'm just going to flash through these really quickly and probably really frustrate you. But um, I thought that I would just give you a little teeny feeling for what, what it looks like. Um, this is the actual study, and this is all online, by the way, and these slide shows a much more extensive one exists. So this is a mapping of what it actually looks like, shores, shelves, continental margins, the plains, I mean, it's a vastly, it's an undersea, you know, landmass, extraordinary. This is marine transport, the oceans are more crowded than ever today. Um, This had not actually been mapped before, just to give you a feeling for how much traffic, human traffic, there is, and incredibly dirty. I mean, largely unregulated. This is seafloor crowding just in the Gulf. Those are undersea oil pipelines. That's just in the Gulf area, right? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, These are the kinds of technologies that were used, all kinds of different ships, um, submarines, robots. I mean, really quite extraordinary. And we knew none of this. I mean, this is one of the great hopes is the knowledge, because now we have an idea what's out there. So they looked at diversity. They found that the kinds of life are much richer than we had any idea of. The distribution, where they live and travel, much more connected. The abundance, very altered, which you'll see in a moment. This is just to give you a feeling for the extraordinary beauty, the quote, new species, but we've discovered lots of them, and just to give you a feeling for the incredible beauty. An octopus that had never been seen by us before. A squid worm. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up, right? (laughs) Star Wars. Um, this is just um, some—I'm not sure it's how it's pronounced copopods, I believe, and isopods. You know, it looks like something from a Grateful Dead concert. <laughs> <laughs> um, my brother had uh, a, a lobster named after him. That—that <laughs> that is cool, I have to say. And my mom likes to wear the T-shirt, so. <laughs> Um, Notice particularly the Yeti crab on the bottom right, the furry one, because it turned into a skateboard, (laughs) which I think is a great cultural application for these things. So all you artists out there, you got a lot of work to do. Global hotspots, we did not know where the greatest diversity is. If you really want to focus on conservation, this actually gives you a really good reading on where the most important areas are where the most diversity is. Um, This is just in the gulf, in the deep water horizon, spill 8,300 species that we know of, right? That's what's also living there, besides this giant mess. And this is migratory patterns. Um, These are elephant seals, one of which stays very close to shore, the other which goes deep dives down down to 2,300 meters. So travel is not just um, horizontal, it's vertical. There's real commuting that goes on. Uh, Extreme site fidelity. The white shark off California here stays in a very, very constricted zone, or a very circumscribed zone. So that's where they live. This is some of the migratory patterns, the connectivity. Tuna, turtles, and sharks. So apart from human traffic, there's other traffic out there. And this is the vertical connectivity, um, which goes on all day and all night. The, you could see the height of the Eiffel Tower there and how deep, and, how deep this goes. Uh, tuna commuting Tokyo to LA. <laughs> 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 kind of a dangerous route, you know? <laughs> this is Key West, 1958 in Florida. This is what a fisherman would catch at that time. And fast forward, that's what they catch 30, 40 years later, 50 years later, sorry. And this is the Encyclopedia of Life DNA barcodes. They're genetically barcoding all of these animals. And each one will have a web page. Um, you can go to the EOL.com Encyclopedia of Life. And um, we're just you know learning an incredible amount. And this is just the summary: 2,700 scientists, 80 countries. I mean, you get a sense—some, um, you know, three quarters of a trillion dollars, or I mean, of a billion dollars. I'm sorry. Um, 1,200 quote new species, with 5,000 we haven't even described yet. They don't even have names for them. <laughs> they're strangers. And this is the voted the favorite fish: <laughs> the blob fish. <laughs> Only a mother could love, as they say. Um, This is from one albatross. This is what they found inside. And let's see. I think that might be it. Yeah, that's it. Good deal. So onwards. Check it out. And I thought it would be very relevant to the work of Philippe Cousteau, who is above all an educator and communicator and media maker. Philippe comes from a legendary family that's devoted itself so resolutely over three generations to protecting and restoring the seas that their family name has become synonymous with the movement to study and defend our water planet. Philippe has built on his grandfather's and father's legacies with his own remarkable path. In 2000, when he was just 21, he and his sister Alexandra, who spoke here a few years ago, co-founded Earth Echo International to empower youth to take action to protect oceans and the entire biosphere. In 2007, he co-founded Azure Worldwide as an environmental consulting, development, and media company. And he's a prolific media producer. He does a lot for National Geographic as well as Sport Diver magazine. I'm a special correspondent for CNN International chief ocean correspondent for Animal Planet and Planet Green, um, producing many, many documentaries. And he was part of the stunning, groundbreaking BBC series Oceans, which I highly recommend to you, and is now producing a radio series for PRI's Living on Earth, um, to name just a few of his projects. He's also passionate about encouraging young people worldwide to make a difference, and is the chief spokesperson for environmental education for discovery education which is the number one provider of K 12 broadband delivered educational content to US schools. And he speaks at a lot of science fairs and, and many, many schools at all levels. He's a committed advocate who's on all kinds of boards that really concert for conservation. Um, and he helped found and co chairs the really important Gulf Action Network for the Clinton Global Initiative. And as Philippe has said and has proven, it takes more than a birth certificate to be a Cousteau. So please join me in welcoming Philippe Cousteau.
1: Well, good afternoon. It is just the afternoon. What a wonderful three days it's already been. We, uh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for joining us here at Bioneers 2011 and uh, for allowing me to share a few thoughts for a few minutes with you and show a couple videos and, and just have a good time and tell some stories. It's, uh, and, I, and I promise I will do my best to keep to my time. Uh, I know that I um, remember it was the a former senator from Virginia, John Warner, reminded me once, blessed are the brief for they should be re-invited, and I am, uh, I definitely want to come back, so I'll keep that in mind. But first and foremost, I wanted to share with you a story, a little story about someone who had a huge influence on my life, my grandfather, Jacques Gusteau. Now, he was someone that inspired all of us, I'm sure, and, and, and the entire world to see the world in a different way, and that is certainly something that he taught me. But interestingly enough, he had to go through his own journey of seeing the world in a different way before he himself could help the world. When my grandfather was young, he joined the Navy and traveled around the world and eventually made the rank of captain. But his dream, actually, was not to swim in the ocean, but was to fly in the sky. He wanted to join the Naval Aviation Division and was well on his way. had joined uh, when, unfortunately, he had a car accident and broke his back. He was washed out of the naval aviation program and prescribed swimming in the Mediterranean every day as a means for rehabilitation. A captain of his gave him a pair of goggles and he looked underwater and a whole new world was opened up for him. And it was from that, what I I call perhaps the most fortuitous car accident in history, (laughs) that he then went on to explore the oceans. And his frustration at only being able to breath hold dive Led to this co invention with a, a, a scientist named Emid Gagnon, an engineer named Emid Gagnon, of the scuba tank, the self contained underwater breathing apparatus, what they called Aqualung at the time, and really spending 50 years traveling around the world. And some divers out here I can see. So I hope so. If you're not diving, you're missing 70%, you are missing most of the planet, right? So. Um, so, my grandfather always told me about how much, how critical it was for him to open up his eyes to a way of thinking, a different way of thinking, and that was a course that he took throughout his life. And I brought a video clip for you today, about uh, uh, from one of my father and grandfather's films from the Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau that I wanted to share with you. In just a few minutes. It's my favorite video clip of all, and it is from the Nile film. Now, my father died in 1979 and he passed away in an airplane accident just about six months before I was born. But the last film that he did was The Nile, and it was a two-hour special, and they journeyed the entire length of the Nile River in Africa to explore the relationship between the environment and people. And this one particular clip still inspires me to this day, and it is uh, from the first half of of the show. My father, of course, produced and directed and filmed 26 of the Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau series until he died. And um, this, I think, was one of his best shows of all. So if we could roll that clip.
2: Closely related to the Dinka, the Shilluk are markedly different, taking much of their food from the river itself. Unlike the Dinka's autonomous bands, the Shilluk have a long tradition of divine kingship. Four people scattered over wide distances The king not only provides a unifying presence, but is indeed the living symbol of the tribe's prosperity and survival. Long tradition prescribes that a king be ritually killed when his powers begin to fail or disaster strikes the tribe. Yet both in years of want or plenty, The waters of the Nile are so clouded with sediment that none of the shillik have ever observed the fish they catch swimming in their natural habitat. To film some of the Nile's species and display their underwater behavior to the tribesmen themselves, Philippe and Dominique have assembled a portable tank. Into it now, one by one, are placed the various living specimens netted by the villagers, among them a formidable predator, the tiger fish. Adorned by their characteristic rows of beaded scars, the villagers watch as Philippe demonstrates the use of a diver's snorkel. Below the surface, the captured fish swim in this strange new environment. Nile perch that sometimes grow to 150 pounds, tilapia whose tiny offspring, in times of danger, take refuge in the father's mouth. The catfish, equipped for the Nile's clouded waters, with the feelers by which it probes its way along the bottom. Eager to try this new device, one of the young villagers dons the snorkel, to explore a world which has been beside him all his life, but which he has never seen.
1: explore a world which has been beside him all his life, but which he has never seen. And it's such an eloquent way to, to frame the challenge that is before all of us, and which really is what, to me, Bioneers is all about. And if there was anything my grandfather taught me, he said, always look at the world, and always endeavor to look at it in a new way, and explore new things, and understand that everything is interconnected. And I always believed him, but it wasn't until I was about 16 years old and I was on a trip to Papua New Guinea, an island just north of Australia, that this really struck home to me. Now, this is one of the most remote places on the planet, and the people that live in the highlands where we were live without many of the modern conveniences that we take for granted, of course, of plumbing and electricity, et cetera. And they still hunt with bow and arrow and spears and you know, barefoot and, and grass skirts and birds of paradise feathers and headdresses, beautiful. And I remember walking down a dusty road one day, and group of tribes that were walking towards us. And indeed, they'd they been hunting, they had beers and bow and arrow, et cetera. And a group of young men at the back of, the, of this party of, of individuals, barefoot, grass skirts, some birds of fa- paradise feathers and headdresses, et cetera. And yet they were wearing Lakers t-shirts. <laughs> Here we are in the most remote place in the entire world And they had Lakers t-shirts on. Now, way to go for the marketing guys at Lakers, I got to say. That's... I hope they got a bonus that year. On top of that, though, if there were ever a question in my mind about the golden threads that unite each and every one of us together, they were truly dashed with those images. And, you know, for my grandfather, for a very long time, it was all about exploration. We knew, and we know, as you saw from the census of marine life, so little about our planet. I mean, from the biggest, you know, the the blue whale that's twice the weight of the biggest dinosaurs, we know virtually nothing about, to the smallest. Now, think about this next time you're swimming in the ocean uh, and take a mouthful of water. In every (laughs) quart of seawater, there's about 20,000 different kinds of bacteria. So, uh, from the biggest to the smallest, there's still a great deal that we don't know. And yet, for a long time, It was about exploration, until about the 60s, when my grandfather revisited places in the Mediterranean and the Red Sea that he'd been diving in the 40s, and saw such a profound change in the health of those environments, that he returned home with my father and said, it is no longer just about exploration. It is about conservation. Now, I had an opportunity working with uh, ABC News a few years, about two years ago, with with the incredible Bob Woodruff to go down to the Florida Keys. They called me up and they said, you know, we want to profile your work and we want to go somewhere where we can show the change in the health of the oceans over time. Where can we do that? And I said, well, Florida Keys. I know folks that have been down there diving for a long time. They got footage from the 80s and I guarantee you if we go back to the same place today, film in that same spot and show that footage side by side, you will be shocked by what you see. So I brought that video clip to share with you today as well because I think it speaks much better uh, than any words could ever. Let's borrow that.
3: What's different about the Cousteau message today is the urgency required to save some of the ocean's most vital ecosystems. Coral reefs, home to one quarter of all marine life, a major source of food for the planet, a natural barrier that protects coastline from hurricanes, are virtually disappearing from the map. Scientists predict they may be extinct by 2050. Maybe, Philippe took me snorkeling in the know, reefs the of the Florida the Keys us, that, to so. witness their devastation yeah, firsthand. Are you ready? ready, Mr. Cousteau? Let's do it. I don't see. Right here, we are on the third largest barrier reef in the entire world. They think there's about 200 miles here. They think that about
1: 80% has been destroyed. Florida Keys is classified as a dead zone by the United Nations Environmental Program.
3: To my untrained eye, the reefs were obviously brown and dead in spots, but still majestic. with schools of yellowtail, parrotfish, even a barracuda. I was gonna tell you, it feels dude, It's great to swim right down there with a barracuda. I know, we saw that massive barracuda, it was huge. <sighs> It wasn't until afterwards, when we put our footage side by side with footage of the same reef shot in the late 1980s, that the devastation was shocking.
1: In a vacuum, this doesn't look so bad, especially for someone that's never been diving before, never seen what a coral reef looks like. What What kind kind of of fish are these? Those are uh, tanks, blue tanks. Do do we see any of those? Nope, I didn't see one. This beautiful French angelfish. And this Uh, is fantastic. I didn't see any of these. And the water is much murkier. All those bits of gray kind of dead rock is this Elkhorn coral that has just died and collapsed and and crumbled. This is what we inherited and this is what we're passing on to the next generation.
3: What do you think your grandfather and your father would say if they saw these two screens?
1: I think they would, I think it's very possible they would almost be in tears. I mean you, it's heart wrenching. Nature is resilient, it can turn around, it can come back. If we give it a chance, we just don't give it much of a chance these days. Unfortunately. Big change, a big change and a, and a terrible change to think that that is what we are passing on to our children who will never have the choice to be able to see those reefs in such majesty. And of course, we've lost 25% of the world's coral reefs with another 25% on their way out. It is a tragedy that is simply one example of what we are doing to this planet. And in so doing, to ourselves, um, there is a, a great saying uh, from a, uh, that, that, that it's not about environmental conservation. If, if we hold our hands out to represent the history of the planet, The time that human beings have been on it would be the shaving off the end of your fingernail. This isn't about environmental (laughs) conservation. It is, but it's also about human conservation. We cannot survive without coral reefs. We cannot survive without healthy forests. We simply cannot survive. And that shift to conservation had a huge impact on the world and certainly growing up a huge impact on my life. And yet, as you saw we still face tremendous challenges. And a lot of it, I would say that the two biggest challenges that we face are water and energy. A lot of it driven by a population growth that has exploded. When you think that in zero AD, there were about 200 200 million people on the planet. That in 1900, there were about 1.6 billion. Today, or this year, we hit somewhere in the neighborhood of seven billion. And by the middle of the century, nine and a half billion. We are facing challenges that we, as a species, have never had to face before. We faced war, we faced famine, et cetera. Never this kind of global freight train headed towards a brick wall of declining resources and growing population. And as I said, water and energy are, I believe, and I'm sure you've heard a lot about it these few days, so I won't go too into depth, the two biggest challenges we face. Today, one billion people go to sleep without enough fresh water. The United Nations estimates that by the middle of this century, it could be. 5 billion people every day. And energy, climate is one of the big causes, climate change, of this challenge. Those places around the Equatorial regions, those people who are the least prepared to deal with these challenges, are the ones that will be the most affected, And they are the ones that will see places with a lot of rain have more and little rain have less. Already, genocide in Darfur was largely a water crisis in the last decade. And the suffering continues today. And when you think about energy, I, I have to say, I spent a lot of time uh, in the Gulf of Mexico covering the oil. So we went diving in the oil. We covered that for over a year. And um, it's a mess. And it still is. All you have to do is go back to Alaska, Exxon Valdez in 1989, and see that those communities still haven't recovered. The herring still hasn't recovered. And the oil, is, the oil supply is declining. And what are people going to do when the oil has gone and there's no more fish? Go back to Ishtac from 1979, where we filmed a CNN not long after the Deepwater Horizon spill, where there was an oil spill of similar size off the coast of Mexico, and you can still reach down into the sand and pick up mats of oil and break them open and have the fumes and the petroleum coming out over 30 years later. And these days, it seems that we won't be happy until we've drilled ourselves every single last drop of oil and as you can see that might not be uh, the best thing in the world we uh we can't drill ourselves out of the problems we have in this world we need to recognize that climate change and our dependence on fossil fuels truly are a disaster and of course water Um, well i should i should back up and say and comment that that one of the things that frustrates me the most about the energy debate and climate change debate and this is a little aside is that we focus so much on climate change that we forget the other issues that we face in this world and the other impacts that energy and our dependence on fossil fuels has. Think about health, for example. Childhood asthma and children under five has risen 160% in this country since 1980 with a tremendous cost to our health care and a tremendous cost to the rights of our children. Think about security. There's a great quote from uh, former head of the CIA, James Woolsey, who said, I, um, I have it here, quote, I highly doubt that George H.W. Bush would have felt compelled to defend Saudi Arabia when Iraq invaded Kuwait if the Middle East had 70% of the world's broccoli supply. <laughs> CNN recently reported that one out of eight casualties in the war in Iraq were from soldiers escorting fuel convoys. P.O.D. hates oil just as much as we do, folks. Water. The other challenge, of course, as I mentioned, people declining five billion by the middle of the century without enough water every day. The average individual has to travel six kilometers just to get enough water, and oftentimes it's women or girls that have to do that. Women or girls that then don't have an opportunity to go to school, don't have an opportunity to elevate their communities. The World Wildlife Fund estimates that we use 1.5 times the resources that this planet can successfully Sustainably restore like a farmer eating their seed now lately there's been uh, there's been a lot of partisan bickering around the environment, as you see and uh, unfortunately, conservation <laughs> has turned into they gave. They gave me a choice, it was either this, or watch political debates. <laughs> Politicians have turned the environment and conservation into a play toy, into a, a means for debate and argument, when clean air and clean water are universal truths that belong to each and every one of us. And I'm always, I'm always confused and concerned by that debate, and and I did a little dig in. I I went back and I looked at a document, and in particular, uh, a phrase from a document or a section of a document that I think you'll all recognize. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. And I think to myself, how can we have tranquility and defense in the face of ever-growing wars linked to our destruction of natural resources? How can we secure the general welfare of our economy as hostage to a false free market? And perhaps most of all, How can we ensure the blessings of liberty to our posterity when they suffer chronic disease, when they watch as we indebt our planet and them for our own short-term gain? How can we recognize the great dream of this country if we don't take care of that which we have inherited and are passing on to our future? That's the message that our politicians should be thinking about. And yet, there are solutions. We have the opportunity to do great things, and we are doing great things. I think about uh, Oakland City Schools. I met with the superintendent about a year ago, and he told me about their work to not only green the community and green the school system, but save money while they're doing it, to put more teachers to work, put more education resources in the classroom. Their diversion of solid waste saves them $600,000 a year. With an investment in renewable energy, their energy bill, they estimate, will go from five million to two million dollars a year. That's a lot more teachers and education for our youth. <laughs> or those organizations that are recognizing the power of women of embracing and empowering women around the world, understanding that women with access to clean water have a better opportunity to go to school, and that the average woman with an educate with a higher education has 1.2 children, whereas with no education at all, 4.5 children. The power of women is tremendous. My grandfather always told me about that. Or when you think about <laughs> financial markets, growing up, I'm, you know, people always thought he was science. He was the ocean, ocean, ocean. We grew up, and he always talked about the importance of empowering women in developing countries. <laughs> or that financial markets, Wall Street. A lot of challenges in financial markets today, and yet we're making progress. In just three years, the number of signatories to the UN Principles for Responsible Investment has soared from 50 to over 850, representing about $25 trillion in investable assets. So we gotta keep keep that pressure on, on Wall Street. Now, no doubt we have seen a lot of changes in this world. And I hope that we can find a, a hidden history lesson <laughs> from them. Because as you've heard for the last three days, as Winston Churchill once said, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Now. Uh, I've only got about a minute or so left, and I hope you'll indulge me in my closing remarks. I brought a letter to read to you today. I don't read it very often. Um, As the closing speaker at this plenary, I'm I'm honored to have the opportunity to share a letter from my grandfather that he wrote in eulogy to my father just after he died. We had it framed, and uh, I grew up with it in our living room, framed on the wall, read it almost every day. And it inspires me to this day, so I'll read this now to you. Cher Philippe, I will always remember that day of July, 1963, when you joined the Conshelf II expedition along the Shabrumi Reef in the Red Sea. The sun was setting when you climbed aboard Calypso from the launch that had driven you from Port Sudan Airport, but I would not give you time to relax. I was too impatient to show you our village under the sea before it became too dark. Hastily, we both donned our lungs, and slowly, sensually, we submerged into the welcoming water as warm as our blood. When we started for an unforgettable stroll with slow strokes of our long, stretched legs, breathing deep lungfuls of air, I kept your hand in mine to guide you from Starfish House, where six oceanauts were having dinner, to the onion-shaped diving saucer garage, to the tool house, the fish farm, to the deep cabin where we observed the two black masked oceanots go to bed, and then to the anti shark cages strewn here and there as emergency shelters. I introduced you to Jules, the great Barracuda who had adopted us. I showed you the cave in which the large bumphead fish went to sleep at night, and of course, we met the inevitable sharks who kept cruising around the village. Twilight was turning to sheer darkness, and our structures became eerie shadows. The fish were just moving pieces of the sea. I was still holding your hand when we returned to the ladder, and I felt strangely proud, not of what we had achieved, but because our dreams were always shared so intimately. Three years ago, I found myself sitting near you in the cockpit of our Catalina, the seaplane you had equipped especially for oceanography and for diving. From years of gliding, hand-gliding, piloting planes, and helicopters, even ballooning, you had acquired an unusual expertise. Now, you were giving me a ride to the Mexican island of Isabella in the Pacific. Taking off in sheaves of water, the whole of the plane was an extension of your body. The roar of the motors was the expression of your joy. The clouds that dotted your sky were just other forms of water, like our own flesh. I look at you, my guide in the skies, I've been your guide in the sea. I saw your shining face, proud to have something to give back to me. And I smiled, because I knew that pursuing rainbows in your plane, you would always seek after the vanishing shapes of a better world. My time is up, ladies and gentlemen. I'm honored to, again, be the closing speaker at this plenary, at this incredible conference. And I thank all of you for coming and all of you for your continued dedication to also seek after the vanishing shapes of a better world. Have a lovely rest of your weekend.